Highway Code Changes 2022. Who knew? This is Wheel Life. Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Caroline Hall, a solicitor at DAC Beechcroft. Hello, I'm Emily Formby, a barrister at Bethnanis' Chambers. Thank you for joining us today, where we're going to discuss the recent highway code changes uh, that took place, oh, two weeks ago now, 29th of January, they uh, came into force and uh, they affect all road users. But first, how are you doing, Emily? I'm really, really well, thank you, Caroline. Yeah, um, can't quite believe that we're here talking about uh, highway code changes that almost no one knows about and limping towards half term uh, with the hope of, uh, you know, having a bit of a bit of time off. But very good. Yeah, very good. And delighted to see a little bit of spring, a little bit lighter in the mornings, a little bit of flower coming out, a few bulbs coming out. How about you? Yeah, I think the lighter in the mornings will help me to get back on the bike and cycle into the work, into the office when I'm actually here these days. I've got a bit scared about cycling in the dark i used to do it without any fear or problem whatsoever but because i haven't commuted in the dark for two years i'm fi- i found it very difficult to get back on my bike to do it but hopefully probably not next week but the week after i think i'll be able to cycle both ways in daylight so i'm i'm committing to that by the next time we record i'll hopefully have commuted by bike well i will hold you to that and we will <laughs> we will see how you're doing in the next episode <laughs> yeah but in the meantime Let's see how the road users will uh, look after you as you carry out that endeavour. Yeah, um, as uh, Emily alluded to, uh, the highway code changes have been uh, have just turned up at the end of January as a bit of a surprise to some people. They follow a consultation that took place back in uh, the summer from July to October of 2020. And at that point, the Department of Transport ran a consultation where they were seeking stakeholder views on changes to the highway code, which dealt with vulnerable categories of road user. They actually had 20,000 responses, which I'm told is quite a lot for a government consultation. You had lots of different stakeholders take um, putting in uh, submissions. We did, but you had a lot of submissions from cycling groups because a lot of the changes, as you will see as we progress through today, deal with cycli- cyclists, pedestrians and vulnerable road users. I think it's really interesting, actually, because we don't necessarily know what's a lot, what's not a lot. But certainly... Um, um, our involvement in this sphere, um, we know that there are lots of um, kind of active participant groups for cyclists, pedestrians, road health, road care, you know, dealing with lorries and everything. So perhaps it's not surprising that this is a um, an area that would excite a certain amount of comment. But in a way, it makes it even odder <laughs> that now the changes are coming through, they've kind of, you know, they've kind of crept in with almost no um, discussion or insight or uh, badging at all. Yeah, um, back so in December, the government uh, laid before Parliament the documents that were needed to um, set out the proposed changes to the Highway Code. And then if no objections were actually raised in either the House of Lords or the House of Commons, those changes were going to come into force on the 29th of January 2022. And then nothing happened. It went quiet. (laughs) There's no reporting or anything else. Um, So much so that on the 27th of January, the House of Lords actually debated a regret motion 
which was expressing their concern that the government had failed to sufficiently educate the public about the changes. So the issue with the government not doing anything in between that, um, there was a vacuum. And if you go online and look at the newspapers, that's where the headline writers and the various other organisations stepped in. And we had a look at some of the headlines out there. And one of the um, headlines was the highway code changes are to make it easier for drivers to be responsible, found responsible in accidents or huge highway code changes affect come next week, affecting all drivers and cyclists. So they really do kind of focus in on certain aspects of the changes, but there's quite a lot of misinformation out there as a result of it. Um, And it depends on who's writing the headline as to where the spin is. But I will say that cycling groups are very, very happy with the changes and so are a lot of pedestrian organisations. But if you read the headlines in the newspapers, it's the end of the world for drivers. Yeah, I think it is really interesting, actually, because on the one hand, um, pedestrians get a lot of positive press with things like, um, you know, e-scooter menace on the pavement or um, lorries um, with cyclists and, and so on and so forth. But but there is still a lot of very pro-car information out there, um, as we've seen with sort of low traffic neighbourhoods and so on and so forth. And certainly you would have thought it was the end of the world. And if you were in a car, you were going to automatically be found responsible for everything, which um, isn't quite true, is it? I mean, so one of the things that we will try and do is sort, sort out a little bit of the, the reality from that sort of myth um, and maybe the first point is to have a look at um, what the sort of purpose of the highway code is um, and, and, you know, what the point of it is. And, and in its in sort of most literal sense, it's obviously trying to um, encapsulate best practice for road users. As we know, it doesn't carry with it an automatic liability in the personal injury sphere. It's got a mixture of guidance, some of which is advisory, which is something you should do, and some of which is mandatory, which you have to do. Um, But a breach of the highway code in and of itself um, doesn't um, automatically bring with it, in an injury claim, um, a liability finding. It will depend on the circumstances in the round. And so while you can have a legal requirement with the use of the word must, where non-compliance can result in a fine or an endorsement on your licence, or even if you're totting up and, and it's sufficiently bad, you can get into disqualification in the criminal sphere. In, in, in the um, civil sphere, it doesn't automatically result in a finding of liability. You can't sort of waive your highway code breach and say, there you are, um, I would like judgment um, in my favour. Um, in the same way that you can if there's been obviously a, a finding of, of criminal liability and, and a criminal judgment in the courts. Yeah, to flip that round as well, Emily, just because there isn't a breach on your part doesn't mean that you won't be found liable either. It's No, no, um, yeah, it works both ways kind of thing. And also the main thing to um, go back to, and I alluded it to earlier, to it earlier is the highway code applies to every road user so when we're talking about um the changes they they in the main have tweaked the areas that deal with pedestrians and cyclists and horse riders however everybody really should read the highway code but i can guarantee uh if we had uh if we could straw poll our listeners now and ask them if they'd read the highway code since they passed their driving test other than for work purposes bearing in mind we look at it 
day-to-day if we're looking at cases. But if they'd read the highway code since they'd undertaken their test, or if they've never taken their um, driving test, if they've actually read it as a cyclist or a pedestrian, I think it, I'm thinking the numbers are going to be quite low. I think that's right. And obviously, we know that one of the reasons that the um, sort of the paper test was brought in for the two stages of learning to drive uh, was to ensure that there was some benchmarking of knowledge of the highway code at the very start of your driving life um, in your 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 car driving life but there's no requirement for pedestrians or cyclists or other road users to who aren't licensed on the roads to to even go that far Um, and certainly thereafter nobody you know comes along and checks that you know what you're doing Um, and as we know that that, i mean the, the sort of the overarching framework which is set out in the road traffic act 1988 and the section 387 um, sort of wrapping up what you were saying, Caroline, about where failure sits, um, is that a failure on the part of a person to observe a provision of the highway code shall not of itself render that person liable to criminal proceedings of any kind. But any such failure may in any proceedings, whether civil or criminal, um, and including pre- proceedings under the Traffic Act or the Public Passenger Act, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, be relied upon by any party to the proceedings as tending to establish or negative any liability which is in question in those proceedings. So kind of unpacking that, essentially, it is a good guide, it is good guidance, it has rules of various force. And because they are predominantly common sense and because they are designed to make roads safe, if you're not following it, um, then effectively it carries with it a supposition um, uh, that you're um, going to you know, not be um, 100% in the clear, and it can certainly be used as um, establishing your your liability, but not of itself alone, either an escape or a, a get out of jail card or um, uh, in the sin bin. Yeah, well, when I was um, prepping uh, some training on this recently, I, I, I had a conversation with a, an old school friend, and I mentioned all of these road these highway code changes, and her comment was, "Oh well, it won't affect me. It'll, it'll affect Ollie when he does his driving test," and it was like. Well, no, this is an update to the rules of the road. You should be looking at it yourself. Um, And back at the beginning of January, in the run-up to the changes, the AA actually undertook a survey of 13,700 drivers. And I flagged the word drivers here. So they weren't asking all road users. They were just asking members of the AA, so drivers of cars. And one in three were unaware of the changes at that point. And one in 25 had no intention whatsoever of looking at details of the road rule changes. They weren't saying that they were going to stop driving, but they were going to keep driving, but weren't going to look up the rule changes. And this all ties in with what we were saying about there being a a lack of knowledge about these changes. And the government um, are going to do something, but it's after the event as such and that's the think campaign and that's due to launch in this in the next couple of weeks and then with a follow-up campaign in the summer and that's going to go out on facebook instagram snapchat twitter apparently it might even be on tiktok i'm not quite sure about that i might just have made that last tiktok bit up um not knowing exactly what tiktok is myself but i know it's definitely going to be on snapchat and it's going to be the fact that it's trying to appear um get the message out to all road users. Um, I think there's also going to be a radio campaign. So for those of us who have no clue what Snapchat and TikTok are, we can pick it up on the radio. But these are not too little too late at all. Um, It's going to be across the year, but this education campaign is coming in after the changes. Um, The other thing to flag up is the first time you'll be able to pick up a fully printed copy of the highway code with the changes in 
is April 2022. Apparently, there's a, uh, a current acute paper shortage, which means that an updated uh, highway code won't be in the shops. Plus, apparently, the recommended retail price is so low that many places won't stock it. So, um, if you want to find out about the changes, there are what I what we will do is when we post this, we'll put some links to them so you can find them yourself. But at the moment, you can't buy them in paper format and you can't download a full copy of the guide that has them all in there. Well, I remember showing my age a bit when I was starting to drive and needed my first copy of the Highway Code. Um, you bought it in a news agent. I bought it in uh, WH Smith. It was sort of underneath the papers because it was sort of that kind of level of document. Um, but I don't think I've seen one in a regular shop like that for years and years and years. Well, we've got them floating around the office, um, but they're all out of, well out of yeah, date yeah. now. So. I mean, I've got a number of them now from mm-hmm. a professional capacity, but I'm just sort of talking about ease of use of the public. Um, I mean, I was going to say about in terms of information in advance, I think the only thing I heard in advance was, um, plug for another podcast, um, the BBC's Newscast, which is a sort of daily news roundup. And, you know, they're quite often in the midst of the serious news, do a bit of a sort of you know, lighter slot. And they had a um, little quiz about, you know, rules that were changing and which you'd know and which you weren't. So I listened to it, slightly sweaty palmed because I wanted to make sure I got 100%. But, um, you know, that was a little bit of kind of information about what was coming up. And yeah. um, it was, yeah, that's the only time I've heard it. Um, in adv- But, you know, before they, the changes came in, um, and obviously the think campaign is going to come a little way down the line. Yeah. Well, what we can do now is we can talk um, our listeners through a few of the main changes that have been in the press and some of them have been misreported or maybe half a rule has been put in a headline, but then the, the following comments, as in, in certain circumstances, has not has not been flagged by the uh, publication. So the main one rule change or rule addition that I think has got quite a lot of press is the hierarchy of road users. Yeah. And as you say, that's the one that's being publicised as saying now, you know, cars are always going to get it in the neck. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those things that if you deal with um, road traffic claims on a day-to-day basis, whether or not you're working for uh, people who've been injured or if you're working for insurers, uh, on a day-to-day basis, a hierarchy of road users is something that we actually know by other names because we just deal with it and this is how the courts have dealt with cases for years. And if you listen back to our earlier podcast to deal with case law and causative potency, this really reflects that. Yeah, I mean, if you... Exactly that. If you look at the concept of causative potency, which carries with it the idea that he who um, is the sort of dominant force bears the dominant responsibility, um, and that's your sort of benchmark. We discussed it a lot when we look at contributory negligence, because, of course, that's where it usually arises most. Where does the balance of power lie? That concept of power um, is often determined, and I think this is what has been most picked up by the media in terms of size. Um, So you have a very easy concept of a hierarchy of road users when you've got a a large goods vehicle versus a small bike. Um, But that concept of the responsibility of the large, you know, lorry and the large um, um, heavy goods vehicle on the road set against a bicycle is something that um, with the development of the common law, we've been looking at for a very long time. And the idea that um, the, uh, the, the vulnerable I mean, that's, you know, that's what we, we spend most of our time talking about on this pod is the, um, the vulnerable road user um, and the vulnerable cyclist and how they match up or how they can um, cope or survive against um, the larger vehicle. And, and in a way, it's a sort of codification of that which is developed in 
um, our, our practice over quite a long period of time. So although the hierarchy of road users is a name adopted from elsewhere, it really imports that concept of causative potency and looking at what you bring to the table and indeed where your responsibility lies. So, of course, um, the um, car driving along the uh, major road um, and the car that pulls out of the side road without looking, um, you can see that kind of balance of, of causative potency is going to lie against the car pulling out into the pathway before they've started and the, the large lorry turning left with a massive blind spot is going to have a large responsibility to make sure there isn't a small pedestrian or a small bike in that area that they can't see. Um, and, and, and in a way, it's really important codifying that, isn't it, Caroline? It is. And the one thing that I wanted to flag is if you read the wording, it it mentions that those that can cause the greatest harm bear the greatest responsibility to take care and reduce the danger they pose. It doesn't say that those that can cause the greatest harm bear the greatest liability. It's basically putting the onus on the person who is at the bottom of the hierarchy, so the large goods vehicles. They've got to do everything they possibly can to make sure that, as you said, if a lorry is turning left, they've checked blind spots, they've checked cameras, they've done that what they can before undertaking that manoeuvre. Equally, if you're at the top and you're a pedestrian and uh, you can't just run into the road because everyone else is going to stop or if they hit me, it's not my fault. All road users should behave responsibly and specifically the hierarchy of road users flags that it's important that all road users are aware of the highway code, are considerate to other road users and understand their responsibility for the safety of others. I think it's also worth just going back again, as you say, to the exact wording. So it is those that can can cause the greatest harm. And then you're, what your responsibility, you bear the greatest responsibility to take care and to reduce the danger you pose. So I think that is really important. And it's also worth emphasising, as you say, not only does it not necessarily mean you're liable or responsible for an accident that happens, um, but it's about taking care and steps to reduce your danger. Um, and so... Um, just as you would expect, and it is, it is something that everybody has to do, um, you can still see there is room for the defence on the part of a heavy goods vehicle to say, you know, I have taken care, um, I've got, you know, all the mirrors that I could have, I've got bleepers, I've got, you know, the bars to push people away, I've got this, that and the other, and I reduced my speed, and I looked, and I waited, and I did this, that and the other. So I've done everything I can um, to take care to reduce the danger that I could pose. And at the last minute, the car, the bike came up the inside of me, um, you know, at the, at the lights. And just as we would have a, a, a discussion in liability about apportionment at that stage, that is still possible and present within that hierarchy definition. Yeah, and there's there's within all the publications, there's different diagrams floating around showing the hierarchy. Um, it tends to be pedestrian, then cyclist, then motorcyclist, then car, then lighter, uh, smaller uh, van, then lorries um, working the way from the top to the bottom. The two items, the two methods of transport that are float around depending on where you look are horses and e-scooters. Um, and Emily will, is smiling now because I've mentioned e-scooters and it's taken this long into the but podcast. I love, I love you. And I love you. Actually, you're also quite keen on horses because when we were doing our legal update, I had to find you some horsey cases. And um, not wanting to jinx things, we are 
certainly hoping to have a horsey episode or certainly a more horsey episode later on. Um, but it, But it is interesting that in some ways it's reflective of the relatively sort of old-fashioned concept in the highway code, the e-scooters, you know, this whole consultation and this whole new, um, brave new, you know, 21st century highway code <laughs> can't cope with um, the concept of e-scooters, which are the newest form of transport of potential vulnerable road users. I mean, you could say horses are the oldest because they are pre-combustion engine, um, but it it is still, I think it's still very much a code that is governed by the combustion engine you know so it's quite good for cars and different sizes of cars <laughs> um, and everything else and it's pretty good with cyclists but everything else gets a little bit harder so yes where do we put our horses where do we put our e-scooters in this hierarchy Caroline? Well different diagrams you see will put the horses between the cyclist and a motorcyclist others you might see it between the pedestrian and the cyclist I tend to put them on a par with the cyclist uh, because a lot of the rule changes that we're going to move on to mention cyclists horse riders and horse-drawn vehicles. So they lump them together in the changes kind of thing. And in terms of overtaking distances, uh, again, horses and cyclists now have um, the specific distances in there. So I put them there. Different organisations, depending where you look at, put them either between the cyclist and the motorcyclist or the cyclist and the pedestrian. Have you got any views, Emily? I don't think they're anything like as high up the chain as a motorcycle. And I think that the difficulty is if you look at the size of someone on a horse, they're quite big. And so you might think they go up the line. But if you look at what you've got, as you always say, you've got the two brains, you've got an animal, which is in in and of itself inherently um, a little, you know, trickier. You know, a motorcycle isn't going to get spooked if you pass it closely. A horse may well. So I think I'd put them down the line like you would. And the other issue is e-scooters uh, and these changes have come in before uh, e-scooters are legalised. We've obviously got the government trial ones, but we haven't. And then we've got the illegal private ones. In terms of where you place them, my personal view is that they go between cycles and motorcycles due to uh, the speed of them uh, versus a cyclist, which um, pedal power kind of thing. I don't. I think we've had this conversation before about whether or not they're similar to electric bikes. But my view at the moment, and it will... Where they actually technically end up in the hierarchy might come down to when the government legislate, whether or not there's insurance in place, whether or not the the speed limiting uh, stays at 15.5 or if it goes up, uh, the weight of the vehicles that um, are allowed, all of these different things, which we don't quite know yet where the government's going to come down on them. I think that's probably going to help differentiate where they go. But yeah, as I said, I put them between cyclists and motorbikes. How about you, Emily? Having been a user... I would say they are much more dangerous than electric bikes um, and I would put them much closer to motorbikes. I think they've got, um, and I think they've got a lot of those characteristics with the um, the sort of um, balance and imbalance and swerviness. So I think, and, and also the fact that they are still technically um, governed by all of the Road Traffic Act. I think motorbikes, yep. Let's move on and go talk through some of the changes, um, starting off with pedestrian priority at junctions and crossings. Some of these rules are as they have always been, but there's some new nuances added in terms of pedestrians waiting to cross. So at a junction, you must give way to pedestrians crossing a road into which or from which you are turning. And that's not changed. 
Um, if a pedestrian has started to cross a road, you can't just mow them down. You you always had to stop. Um, the ch one of the changes is you should give way to pedestrians waiting to cross in into a road into which you or from which you are turning. So if you're about to turn into um, a road and you can see a pedestrian stood on the side waiting to cross, the new rules say that you should. And don't forget, should is, is advisory. It's not mandatory. So you don't have to stop, but you should stop to allow that pedestrian to cross which is a bit of a change in the psyche of a driver. I've I've been trying to make myself change my views when I'm turning into roads since this rules has come in place. But pedestrians stand and wait for cars to um, turn and turning cars uh, wait for leave pedestrians on the side kind of thing so me sitting waiting for a pedestrian to step into the road the pedestrian's looking at me going well wait a second what's going on i think it is really interesting because if you change habit and i know that lots of other countries have this rule already and so lots of people when they move to the uk say i can't believe that uh, you know um, pedestrians have to wait for cars but given that that is what people have always done you end up with that slightly awkward after you know after you know that kind of waving and catching eyes thing and then just when you think the pedestrian isn't going to go so you drive they step out so i think what's interesting is is um right or wrong it is a change that carries with it quite a lot of new learning and it's quite difficult to say well the rules have changed you can just crack on also people often stand at the corners of roads waiting for other people um, and so, you know, that you're waiting at a junction, so you've got kids or you've got something you're meeting or whatever, whatever, aren't necessarily poised to cross. And the other thing that I think is not very clear and will obviously require consideration by the driver, to which the answer may be you simply have to make a sensible decision at the time, but I can see leading to some concerns and arguments, is if you're on a major road, um, stopping just before the junction could itself carry with it quite some hazard if there's a traffic flow and it's not expected and you've got your indicator on and people are expecting you to turn and there's no obvious traffic there that would prevent you turning and then you suddenly stop that that could be of concern yeah and it's one of the uh, one of the concerns has been that pedestrians are just going to start stepping out in front of cars as we said it's it's an education piece this rule change only applies when you're talking at junctions and crossings. It doesn't apply to if you're driving down a long stretch of carriageway, a pedestrian can't just, st you, if you see a pedestrian stood on the side of the road, you don't have to stop for them. Um, and, and they equally, they can't just step it out in front of you. It, it applies at junctions, not on long stretches of road. So the other slight changes in this area. It's always been the case that you ha you must stop if somebody's on a zebra crossing, um, but it's just codifying what's always been good practice about giving way to pedestrians waiting to cross rather than just seeing them and just continuing to drive across. Um, pedestrians are reminded to cross at a place where drivers can see you. So don't just step out from behind parked cars and also wait until traffic has stopped from both directions or the road is clear before crossing. Remember, traffic does not have to stop until someone has moved on to the crossing. So it's it's kind of the chicken and the egg. What we were going to what we were going back to there is that if you're stood on the side of the road, uh, you're, you've got to wait for the cars to stop and the cars are told that they should stop for you. But they don't, they only should stop. They don't have to stop. Um but once you step out into the road, then they must stop. So it's an education piece for pedestrians just as much as it is for drivers. I mean, I think it's interesting because if we look at 
um, claims that we have. In some ways, the I think the rules about zebra crossings and you know concomitantly with sort of pelican crossings or kind of dedicated passing crossings and places for pedestrians to cross the road. It's easier to say, well, you can see someone approaching that road and you see them approaching the zebra crossing, and therefore you ought to be slowing down and waiting because. If you stopped and thought about it, you would know that's what their intention was because they're moving towards that dedicated crossing place. So in some ways, that's a lot easier. And and we've all had claims when, you know, it's sort of one of the the main sort of disputes is whether the person had actually got their foot onto the temple crossing or not. Um, uh, you know, at the at the time that the car was approaching, so whether the car should have slowed and stopped or whether it was entitled to carry on. And in some ways, this is the 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 um, requirement that you should give way to pedestrians even as they're coming up to that um, zebra crossing uh, with the considered intention of crossing uh, sort of codifies the fact that one oughtn't to be arguing to a nicety as to whether or not the pedestrian had got their flat foot onto the zebra crossing when you sped over the junction as opposed to being almost there Um, because sort of you know good manners good road rules would suggest that knowing a pedestrian is going to commit to cross at a place where they're perfectly entitled to cross and indeed where they are given a priority, you ought not to be driving like the clappers just before they do so. Yeah, well, it goes back to what we were saying about the hierarchy of road users. A lot of these changes are actually just codifying what is good driver behaviour in any event. So moving on to the next uh, section, and this is again another area that's got loads of press, and it's cyclist priority over motor vehicles at junctions. And we do like a cyclist with priority. <laughs> we do. Um, and it's it's basically aimed at protecting cyclists at junctions, um, which account for a significant proportion of accidents. So it has in, a, has in effect always been the case that road users should avoid overtaking adjacent to junctions. But the changes to the rules now give cyclists going straight ahead priority over traffic waiting to turn into or out of a side road unless there are road signs or markings that indicate otherwise. So the code states that vehicular traffic should not cut across cyclists going straight ahead. It also covers horse riders or horse-drawn vehicles um, when turning or changing lanes just as they would not turn across the path of another motor vehicle. If you had a car intending to turn left at a junction and a car was coming up with its inside lane, a car would never cut across another car. However, if it was a cyclist, we both know as uh, cyclists, most drivers have no compunction in trying to beat the cyclist to turn left and not have to slow down. So the reason for this change is about elevating the status of cyclists and encouraging other road users to treat them with the same consideration and respect as they would give to motor vehicles. So that's that's why this rule's been introduced. And of course, actually, it is just best practice. As you say, it is no good for a car to be racing to get ahead of you at a junction um, so that it can turn left. And we all know, and I think some of the, actually some of the worst offenders are bus drivers. When you're stuck in a bus lane and you're sharing, it always strikes me slightly mad to put bikes and buses in the same location. Um, but you can have the most awful situation when you're cycling along at your steady pace and a bus shoots past you at really quite some speed and really generally too close because the bus lane isn't very wide. And then when it's about three quarters of the way past you, it pulls in hard because the bus stops just ahead. And given the length of the bus, although the driver's gone past, much of the rest of the bus hasn't. Um, and that's happened to me a number of times. Um, another another way it happens a lot is um, at a junction, say you've been at traffic lights or something like that and you're waiting at the front 
um, and a car intends to turn left at those traffic lights, it'll rev off at the lights in order to get in front of you to make the turn, which always yeah. strikes me as a bit nuts because you're going straight ahead um, and they wouldn't need to rev and they wouldn't need to race and they could just go behind you quite happily. Of course, bicycle boxes that are meant to set bikes ahead of the traffic was one demonstrable way of trying to improve that dynamic. But clearly this rule codifies what would be the sensible thing, which is just to let the person going straight ahead crack on um, and then make your turn thereafter. What has also been introduced to help facilitate this is a new rule that recommends that cyclists should position their bikes in the centre of the lane to make themselves as visible as possible and avoid being overtaken when, overtaken when crossing junctions. And this will be, I've seen quite a lot of graphics which, which with the headline, cyclists to cycle in the centre of the lane. Well, yes, in certain circumstances. And this is one of the circumstances that is now in the highway code. And it's pretty much saying the code goes on to say that in those circumstances cyclists should proceed as if they were driving a motor vehicle so again making it that they have set their central in the lane nobody can overtake them they can move off and move away safely and as you said the driver should hang back and let them undertake the maneuver i think that is important but i think that can also be and again it's about being sensible you can have groups of cyclists and, and i know there's rules about being too abreast but even if just a single cyclist who determinately sits in the middle of the lane and, you know, bless them, even with their legs going like the clappers, they're not going to go as fast as a car. And you get increasingly irate cars stuck behind them who then are encouraged, frankly, to make increasingly dangerous overtaking manoeuvres to get past the vehicle that's blocking their, their lane. And, of course, at that point, the sensible bike ought to move into the left and let the cars go past. Well... It's almost like you've re- read the next section of um, the notes, really, Emily. Who because would have thought I'd done that? <laughs> <laughs> because we might as well cover off now this cycling in the central lane point is that, as you mentioned, cycling two abreast is now specifically mentioned as well and when it's safe to do so in larger groups and when with children. But it is also now mentioned within the highway code but that if you are a cyclist, be aware of drivers behind you and allow them to overtake in single file by either pulling into single file if you're cycling two abreast um, and it's safe to do that or by stopping and letting the cycle um, the cars overtake you so it is in there for cyclists saying look come on you can cycle in the center of the lane when it's um, safe at junctions for going across uh, when you're passing parked cars because again it now mentions that if you're passing parked cars you should allow a door's width or one meter to avoid being hit if the car door opens which is going to push you further across into the lane however if uh, you have got cars, you've got a long stream of cars coming behind you, pull, a, pull across and allow them to t- um, pass you. And if it's unsafe for you to just pull in, um, sorry, to just pull across and for a long stream of cars to overtake you, just stop and let them do that and then continue on your journey. So it works both ways, that argument. So whilst I've seen the headlines very much being cyclists in the centre of the lane, no, actually, certain circumstances, and they have also been told that when it's safe to do so, they should pull over and allow you to overtake. And of course, it also states that which we all know, which is although it is legal and permissible for cyclists to pass stationary tra- traffic, um, although it's a, effectively an undertaking manoeuvre, they can do so up the inside, it's always been the case um, and reinforced now 
and that cyclists must take great care when deciding whether it's safe to pass stationary um, traffic or feed up through the lanes, and specifically whether it's safe to pass stationary or slow-moving lorries, especially at the approach to junctions, because, of course, they have such a large blind spot um, that drivers may not be able to see you. And indeed, they may have to move over to the right in order to swing round to the left, um, or indeed they may look as if they're going to go straight over a junction when, in fact, they're going to turn left because so much of them has to come sort of into the junction before they can turn. They don't have a nippy turning circle. So again, that new addition to Rule 76 makes it clear um, that cyclists are still owing a duty at junctions. So in a way, it's codifying good sense and good practice, uh, both for and against. It's, you know, um, being a sensible cyclist means taking a centre lane or taking a centre line or being a car when it makes sense, but also being thoughtful and moving to the left or getting out of the way when it's not. Yeah, because one of the other rule changes or rule additions is that cyclists, if there's slow moving traffic, cyclists can overtake and undertake. So you might have cyclists coming upon your inside, but they may have shifted across and be coming on your right side as well. So if you're in stationary traffic and you're pulling off and you may have to slightly move to get around or obstruction or you're going to move yourself slightly to the right to indicate to turn off right, you need to be looking in your mirrors to who's coming up behind you on both sides. Yeah. Uh, because you've got filtering cyclists on both sides if you're in city centre traffic, probably more than anywhere else. Also, uh, one of the rule changes is that you should be allowing pedestrians to step out and cross in front of your vehicle in stationary traffic. Uh, so always be aware that might be happening as well. Do you know what, funnily enough, I had that happen to me just this other day. Um, a gentleman who I would have to say was not acting with great good sense in the road conditions and may well have been assisted by um, one or two jars of something who assist him in his um, judgment taking but he basically i was in um, stationary traffic in london and it was that kind of you know stop start edging forward and he literally walked straight off the pavement in front of me and then turned hard right between me and a lorry and then went round the back of the lorry and as he did so he banged the back of my car and shouted, I can do this. It's the rules. <laughs> so there's obviously one reader. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, I don't um, hold out much of his charges. Um, but uh, more seriously, talking about overtaking as well, um, there's also a codification about how to overtake and, and what sort of safe overtaking looks like. Because it's always been, as you say, you know, leaving space, leaving enough space to you know give extra space to horses and bikes and so on and so forth but now rule 163 actually gives um you know specifics um and states that when you're overtaking a cyclist at a speed of up to 30 miles an hour you should allow at least one and a half meters um, and more space when overtaking at higher speeds um, which isn't actually defined but you know it's an attempt to give people a, a, a something definite to work with Horse riders uh, do so at less than 10 miles an hour and with two metres space and pedestrians at low speed and two metres space as well. I, I've noticed a difference. I've definitely seen cars pulling further out in the last few weeks, but that might just be, I, I, I've seen quite a lot of 
good drivers in my local area with lots of cyclists or the fact they've all read the rule changes i'm not quite sure but uh it is quite it is pulling over into the other carriageway to be able to overtake really to get 1.5 meters and the higher speeds and more space i would be adding i'd be saying it's the two meters easily if you're going at over 30 miles an hour that's interesting yeah um just one other quick thing to throw in uh before we start um tying up for this week is road positioning on roundabouts and cyclists cyclists and horse horses and horse-drawn vehicles on uh roundabouts can go the whole way around uh, even if they're going you would normally expect them to go into the center and indicate to go right they can go the whole way around entirely in the left lane so it's now specifically flagged to cyclists to take extra care when they're cycling across the exits they should signal right to show they're not leaving the roundabout and they're not obliged to use separate uh, cycle facilities pretty much drivers should be giving priority to cyclists on the roundabout and not trying to overtake them and i'd also suggest not second guess where they uh, think the cyclist will go. Whilst it says cyclists should indicate right the whole way round, if you are on a bike on a fast moving roundabout, you may need both hands on your uh, handlebars to feel safe to get around. So always hang back for a cyclist to see what they're doing. I'm not saying it's right for a cyclist not to indicate right when as I said, the highway code shows that they should, but for safety reasons that they may not mm. be able to, or at least continuously cite a high um, signal right the whole entire time. And I would say from personal experience, I'm not sure on an e-scooter I could do it at all. I mean, personally, I found I couldn't keep my balance and take one hand off. Um, so I'm possibly the only e-scooter in the world who has to get off at every junction. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other people you seem to sort of swing out, but actually, yeah, I mean, you, you may not be able to indicate. Um, but I think there's a, just one sort of small word about helmets, and helmets are a topic that I'm really aware of the fact that we haven't really devoted much time to um, in the entire life of nearly two series of the podcast. Um, but they, they, they do get a passing mention in the new highway code, um, which is suggesting you know, the vexed question that is what we would be looking at is the extent to which you can ever define or determine the extent to which a um, bicycle helmet will protect. Um, and the rule now says evidence suggests a correctly fitted helmet will reduce your risk of sustaining a head injury in, circum- in certain circumstances, um, which I think is a, a, state, a statement that no one could disagree with. But that's where they've placed the guidance on helmets. And it says a lot more than the previous code, which pretty much said you can wear a, sta- a helmet that complies with uh, British standards. I think it was the wording or something similar, whereas this is actually saying it could actually reduce your risk of sustaining a head injury, which is going quite a bit further. Absolutely. Um, but with still plenty of caveats and, and a nod to the difficulty of oh, this yeah. particular area. <laughs> but what we can't do is end without my absolute favourite thing. And indeed, um, my son said to me, um, actually told me off for opening my car door, because he said, Mum, you haven't done the Dutch reach. And I was absolutely taken, I was flabbergasted by the fact that of all the news that have been going around and flying about, he'd picked up on the Dutch reach. But it is such a great... That's such a great phrase. So we now have the Dutch reach, don't we, Caroline? Yeah, well, it's one of those things that I've done, I've talked about the highway code quite a lot recently, and the Dutch reach always comes up. And I must hold my hands up that I have yet to do it. <gasps> so, um, but I think that's mainly because I get in and out of my car at uh, outside my house, which my right hand side is against the curb curb anyway, and then I've not parked in traffic where I've 
been getting out into the into the flow of traffic so uh, that would be the reason i haven't and for those fancy monkeys among you who park off road and have got garages you may never need to know but for those of us that park uh, in 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 town um yeah so no the dutch reaches it's a really great idea and um uh, it's a way of opening your car door um that forces you to look over your shoulder to ensure and of course it only really makes sense um, if you're doing it well, either into into traffic or into a pavement where there's like few people passing. But I suppose good practice is to do it whenever Absolutely. and then it just becomes the way that you open the car door. It makes it automatic. So basically, if you're the driver, instead of just flicking the car door open with your right hand while you're still facing forward, you lean round and use your left hand. And the very process of doing that, and you can all practice it now while you listen, <laughs> the very process of doing that means obviously you turn your body and you force your head round so you can't but help be aware a little bit of something that's behind you. And the very nature of doing it makes you think about looking behind you before you open your door, which is, of course, what we should always do. And obviously, if you're in the front left, if you're in the passenger side, then you'd open the door with your right hand side. But it's basically twisting to open. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, we've kind of galloped through or uh, sped through certain changes we haven't covered everything off but those are the ones that we can see having an effect uh, in potentially in terms of accident claims moving forward but also just flagging up that a lot of the changes are things that we've discussed on the podcast today already um, as what's happening in case law absolutely i mean it's good to know that they have heard us through the ether and have codified the things that we've been saying for a long time <laughs> there's lots more to be said but i think that's probably enough for now don't you think Carla? lovely as it is yeah. to chat <laughs> no i agree but i think it's one of those things that potentially we can revisit down the line once the think campaign's been out once there's been a few decided cases we can look at it again but uh yeah i think the changes are good i think it's just let's get them out there and let's make sure everybody knows about them absolutely well all our loyal listeners, we've done our best to educate you today. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Caroline. Really great to have a chat and look forward to the next time. Thanks, Emily. Speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com.